Well, good day. I'm Mark Sylvester, your host for this 805 Conversation, where we talk to fascinating people you'll want to know better. If this is your first time listening, thanks for coming. The 805 Conversations podcast is produced every other week. Please subscribe so you don't miss any upcoming shows. Our show is sponsored by California Lutheran University School of Management and Tolman and Weicker Insurance Services. Thanks to them both for their support and continued encouragement. And thanks to my podcasting partner and co-host Patrick from Pull String Press for this great studio. Hey, Patrick. Ah, good morning, Mark. Patrick, we have breaking news. Yeah, that you've been sleeping in the studio again? Yeah. I think doing 10 shows in a row is probably... Uh, you're very you're very stout. You've got great stamina. That's what it is. Yeah. I would love you to meet our guest, Carrie Murray. Carrie is the president of Shelterbox based here in Santa Barbara. Is it fair? Is, are you an NGO? We are. Okay, we are. good. I w- just want to make sure I was buzzword compliant. And uh, the reason I say there's breaking news, uh, normally we record our shows and then we post them in the several weeks. I think I'm going to do a special release. Oh, I can't wait because uh, we have Hurricane Harvey bearing down on the Texas coast, supposed to hit sometime tonight. We record on Fridays. Uh, we have, Carrie, we have listeners in 42 countries, wow. which is why I think it's great having you on the show because we're gonna, we're gonna kind of have that global perspective. But tell us what you've been doing all morning. So I've been, well, it's really been the past 24 hours have been consistently on the phone with FEMA. And uh, basically FEMA, the Mass Care Division, which is focused on catastrophic needs of people in our country related to sheltering and feeding. And Shelterbox is, as you know, a humanitarian organization that focuses on bringing life-saving shelter to people who've lost everything in both natural, natural disaster and conflict situations. And in this situation with Hurricane Harvey, it has the potential for really extensive flooding that could displace tens of thousands. FEMA is really looking at some solutions related to repairing damaged structures. Right. So it's one of the solutions that we provide. So we've been talking about, okay, where is aid prepositioned for shelter box, from boxes to kits to tarps. And so we've been looking at what we have in inventory really across the world and within that region that we could deploy if needed in Hurricane And so what's the answer to that? So right now, uh, we have thousands of what's called shelter kits, and those are tarps to repair damaged structures. And there's a real movement of FEMA to now keep people in home. It's called a shelter-in-home solution. Rather than moving people into to trailers or moving them into shelters, it's can you keep people and communities intact? So if you can keep people where they were before and keep communities together, you can help them rebound faster. That's kind of challenging, though, with the flood. I was right. listening this morning. They were saying three feet of rain, right. much less a 12-foot storm surge. In a 24-hour period. Right. Yes, oh. yes. So so right now, FEMA is building what's called a capabilities matrix. So they reach out to their NGO partner, Shelterbox being one, and they look at what gaps we could fill in, in the case of this emergency. So, How long does it take you to get gear to where it's needed. Right. So Shelterbox is really an organization that's focused on providing the literal physical goods. So right. shelter in place, soft-sided tent solutions to shelter kits. And it really varies depending on the disaster that we're going into, where it is. So we often have aid prepositioned very near to where an emergency is taking place uh, in country. 
Uh, we have aid prepositioned everywhere from the International Humanitarian City in Dubai to the UK to more Oklahoma, Panama, Colombia, Singapore, the Philippines. So we preposition aid and we're a model in, of prepositioning. And we always say you can't do in emergencies what you don't do otherwise. And so having uh, aid available and ready to deploy, stocked, prepositioned, so you can pick, pack, wrap, ship that aid when it's needed. But we're also a model in, in that we get we go in and actually hand deliver the aid. So we have hundreds of first responders, civilian volunteers, which I'd, I'd love to share with your listeners who those folks are. But they're incredible people that go into disaster zones. They serve on a volunteer basis. They're the most highly trained people in emergency response. And they serve as volunteers on behalf of Shelterbox and literally go in, conduct assessments, deploy the aid, administer the aid, monitor and evaluate how the aid is working, and it enables our organization to really massively scale in these sorts of emergencies because not only do we have aid prepositioned all the world, all over the world, but we also have volunteers ready to deploy all over the world as well. So it really varies. Uh, you know, we could be we could be in a disaster zone as early as you know day one. Um, sometimes, mm-hmm. if we know something is coming. Uh, if a typhoon is coming, sometimes we'll pre-position and have people in in advance, aid and people. It just really depends on what the emergency is. Describe for our listener what a shelter box is. Sure. So the basic premise when shelter box was created was, what are the basic things that you need to sustain your life in an emergency if you've lost everything? And the basic needs that people have are related to food, water, and shelter. And our founders at the time recognized that many aid groups were bringing in food and water, but very few were bringing in emergency shelter for the immediate aftermath of an emergency. You often see people sleeping outside, digging out with their bare hands. You see contamination of water source. So inside each of these green boxes are the things related to shelter and the non-food items. So the center of gravity is a family emergency tent. It's a tent that's made only for humanitarian purposes. It can withstand 80 kilometer an hour winds, uh, extensive flooding, wind, rain, and that's the, in essence the, the place that a family will call home if they've lost their mm-hmm. home. In addition to the tented shelter, you have water purification units for when you have contamination of water source. You have water containers. You have solar lights, blankets, ground mats, mosquito nets. You actually have stainless steel cooking equipment, something to cook your food in that's brought in. Uh, You also have toolkits, so a basic tool and repair kit so you can start literally digging out and start repairing things. So a handsaw, gloves, tarp, just very basic materials. Um, And then there's children's activities set as well. So you often have displacement of schools and children, and so you have something for the children as well. Each of the boxes is roughly 125 pounds, and that box can serve up to 10 people. So if you remember, Mark, back in 2010, there was a massive earthquake that hit Haiti, and it displaced a million and a half people literally in an instant. And Shelterbox provided about one-third of all tented shelter for that emergency. It was a massive. A third. It was a, a really massive effort. What's, what, I'm sorry to interrupt, but the, the, um, when you say prepositioned, were you prepositioned for anything like that? Where were you coming out of? Well, we were prepositioned uh, within the region. So we did have supplies within the Caribbean that they brought into that. But also that was a mounted effort over time. We had several partners that came in and to play that actually helped facilitate that. So at the time, 
time we had even, you know, Virgin Airlines and Richard Branson's group donating planes. And I we mean, you're get, sheltering half a million people. Yeah, it was a, it was a lot of people. To, wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, Branson. Branson supported. He came in with the, with planes in that effort. So wow. typically, in a humanitarian response, a large scale one, it's both private and public partners coming right. together. And, right. and in that, we had many corporate partners that came together. Um, primarily, it's usually related to charitable donations for the organization, but also, you know, it could be volunteers. It could be f- help with logistics, supply chain. If someone listening right now wanted to volunteer or thought this was a path for them that sounds like really interesting, how would they sign up for that? Well, on the shelterboxusa.org website, there's information on how to volunteer, and there's many ways. One, you know, is the Shelterbox Response Team. That's called the SRT. We have a disaster relief training facility that you would apply to be part of, and one in 30 people will make it through that process. It's a one-year process, and you, if you make it through the process, you are actually one of the first responders that deploys to the front lines and hand delivers the aid mm-hmm. on behalf of the organization. They continuously train, very much like reservists, so every single wow. month they have to train. Wow. And the, the, the commitment is that well, they will deploy a minimum of one time per year, and that's usually for two to three weeks. So we see these outstanding individuals from all walks of life, I from bet. CEOs to professors, we have a college student, uh, we have a member of our board, she is an attorney with IBM. She gives her vacation time each year to wow. deploy. Yeah, it's, wow. it's pretty incredible. No, I, I love that. My, my in-laws just were certified by the county for disaster relief. So they're, they're available to, to help, but they're, they're not first responders by, right. by any means. But they, they're in the 29 that don't make it. And you're, it sounds like that's a pretty um, high bar to be that kind of person, there's mm-hmm. a physical fitness and emotional fitness, lots right. of things that, right. that there's The studying. emotional response seems right. really daunting. The right. concept of, of, of coming from someplace of very, a lot of security and kind of landing on the ground in the midst of something horrific. Nothing. Worst mm-hmm. day of their life. Yeah. Right. And having to, to, I mean, obviously the, the beauty is there for that, but, but just the the toll that must take on the volunteers. Exactly. It, it, and I think that, that people always assume it's the physical rigors and demands but it's really the emotional more than anything else. Yeah. And this type of work really attracts, I would say, a lot of type A people. Well, yeah. But in a response yeah. team, it's just that. It's a team. And so mm-hmm. being able to work very collaboratively across the team and not always be the one leading the team, right, but working collectively and It's hard when you're trying to have a herd a bunch of type A's. <laughs> my life is that. Um, Tell, tell why, why is Shelterbox based out of Santa Barbara? How did that? Tell me that story. Sure. So, uh, well, you know, one one of the reasons is I wound up here in Santa Barbara back in late 2009. I was sent on an assignment with the corporation I worked for, GlaxoSmithKline Pharmaceuticals. We had a new CEO that came in, Andrew Witte, who really wanted to leverage the use of his corporate executives for good. And I was one of the first volunteers that was sent on a nonprofit assignment. Mm. So I wound up here in Santa Barbara in late November of 2009 here to work for Direct Relief, which is a medical relief nonprofit, as you know. And um, I was really thrown into the throes of responding to the Haiti earthquake in 2010 in January. And at that time, you know, I was on a six-month assignment, 
And I had realized very quickly in being thrown into helping raise awareness and support for that effort in Haiti that I could really tap into everything I had learned in my corporate experience working for 14 years with GSK and in marketing and management and was able to really help that organization, I think, increase their visibility and, and help mobilize resources to do more work. And that's really where I first saw Shelterbox was on the, on the ground in a camp in Haiti. And my six months uh, turned into over five years with Direct Relief. I decided to step off the corporate ladder and that I couldn't really go back again. There was a part of me that right. I never was the same again after working in Haiti and just seeing the extraordinary need that people had and the ability of NGOs to help meet that need where governments or companies can't or won't participate. And I decided to take the experience I had and actually do it for good. And I joined Direct Relief uh, for five years. And I would deploy to the front lines in many emergencies. So I went to Japan in 2011 after the tsunami there. Right. Um, I was in the Philippines after Typhoon Haiyan, the strongest storm ever recorded to make landfall in the world. It remains that. And, you know, I just felt so inclined to do this type of work and that it was truly life-saving work being able to go into these situations and help people on their worst day ever. And um, it was back in uh, a visit when I came back in 2015 from a repeat visit to the Philippines where I was on a very remote island in the Philippines that was devastated by the typhoon. And I was there on a trip and I saw a shelter box. It was about 15, 16 months after. Hard to miss those green was, boxes. It was hard to miss the tents. People right. were beginning to then move into more permanent housing. And I remember seeing these iconic structures and I just thought, wow, it's a really amazing group and fills such an important need. And it was after that time that, that I was contacted by Shelterbox and I was asked to start to build Shelterbox USA for the organization. Uh, at the time, they had an office in Lakewood Ranch, Florida. And um, really, it's been a, a huge push for the organization is that um, their scale, we have a, a strategic plan called the 2025 plan, which is a strategic plan to serve 10 times the number of families we currently serve annually. How many do you serve now? Right now, on, on an annual basis, we serve roughly 150,000 people, and that will be over a million people by 2025. And there's been really no shortage of need for our organization's right, work. There's 80, right. 85 million people displaced in our world. So at that time, I said, okay, I'm going to do this. I love this organization. Um, it's a, a real basic need that's near and dear to my heart. And um, I said, if we're going to do it, we're going to build it in what I believe to most be the most philanthropic community in our, in our country, and that's here in Santa Barbara. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, that's why that, Santa Barbara. Yeah, I've heard that from other, um, other nonprofits in town that say, you know, we are surrounded by the people that can support this. And so this is the place that you set up a headquarters because you, you can get the visibility in front of eyes that can actually make a difference. Right. There's more nonprofits in Santa Barbara than anywhere in the country. Yes, there are. Right. <laughs> thirty six hundred. When we did the Nonprofit Resource Network, there were 3,600. And those are the ones that are just had enough people to show up on the radar. There's a ton of small little you know, we'll call them mom and pop nonprofits. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. I want right. to go back to something Carrie said about um, that. Uh, that right now you're serving 150,000 families, and that you're headed towards you know over a million, uh, because there's no shortage for mm -hmm. for what you do. And and just in your short kind of brief description of the of the places you've kind of been in the last mm -hmm. six years of being dropped on the ground, is 
we're seeing this now every year. And right now, I mean, we're, I mean, just didn't something just hit landfall in Hong Kong just last mm-hmm. week? And then now we're looking at, at Texas. Mm-hmm. This is so clearly global warming is, is affecting us <sighs> and, and creating an industry yeah. that, that is needed like, like shelter box. Yes. And, and, and actually just related to global warming in general, it's one of the biggest things that we face is flooding situation, flood-based situations. And we, we respond to a whole host of natural and conflict situations, but flooding is a huge challenge that we have been responding to for years years now. Is the long-term st- strategy getting out in front of that saying that like like it's not going away, we're going to have to get better at dealing with this over the next 20 years? We are, and that's why you've seen a huge evolution in the types of products that Shelterbox provides. While we're best known for that iconic green box, we've really moved so far beyond the box in terms of the types of shelter-based options that we're providing in, in disaster situations and conflict. I mean, mm-hmm. what we do in, in Syria is nothing like the box I described to you. Yeah, let's let's switch from the disaster-based to conflict-based, because mm-hmm. that was new when I first learned about your organization. Tell us about that. Well, conflict right now remains the, the largest piece of the work. It's not earthquakes and really? floods. Yes. It's really been two th- since 2012, responding to the crisis in Syria. Very few aid organizations can actually work successfully there. We work with a few local partners there, one called Relief Aid and one called Hand in Hand for Syria. And all of the items that we're bringing into Syria are procured mostly in Turkey. And it's everything from plastic sheeting. So you see people living in those bombed out buildings. Right. And so no walls. There's no protection from the elements. So it's plastic sheeting to mattresses, to children's clothing, to kerosene heaters, to mobile shelter kits. And it's just been a massive, massive piece of the work that is just not going away. And right now we're gearing up for winter. So we're working on winter shelter kit solutions for people who are internally displaced within Syria. And then we've been doing a lot of work with Syrian refugees as well. Uh, We're working in the region as well with Iraq, with the offensive in Mosul. And, you know, this is a, while it may not dominate the headlines every day, it's a situation that is still dire that's not going away. And the need is massive. So there's uh, roughly 85 million people displaced in our world. Over 60 million of those are by conflict situations, Hmm. more than any other time in recorded history. And that number is growing and expected to grow over the next decade. Let's let's, just back up for a second. 60 million Mm -hmm. people displaced Mm -hmm. by conflict. Mm -hmm. 85. You know, it's 85 total. With disaster. With oh, with, with disaster, disaster yeah. but 60 by mm-hmm. conflict. Mm-hmm. Tell me, so I can imagine all the bad things about that. <laughs> but tell us something that would surprise us around how hard it is to get to do your job in Syria. Yeah, so... Uh, it's very difficult. I mean, we have um, in most of the regions we're working in, we can't, we don't talk about it. Even one of the partners we have, we don't oh. name that partner. Uh, do you, I think you'll remember the the chemical attack in, in Syria mm-hmm. sure. in the spring. We had a, one of our partners doing distributions of our aid that day in that oh. town, oh. and it's truly, you know, life, you know, life altering and and life saving work that they do. But th- they risk their lives to do this work. So we've lost some of our partners in the past year. To distributing our aid uh, by snipers in, you know, in Aleppo on, on a building. We had some of our partners that were that were there and that were shot and killed. And, you know, they're risking their lives to do this work. And it's just, um, it's it's awful to see these people that are just ca- caught in the conflict in this horrible time in our human history. 
And, you know, the, I think the other thing that always surprises me is the power of the human spirit and the resilience that some of these families have and people have in some of these horrible situations that I've met on the front lines of disaster situations that just tr- truly inspire me and, and, dr- and drive me to, to keep going. Yeah, I bet. Mm-hmm. You but back to something else you said earlier, which is, uh, and you 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 said it so eloquently and quickly. Um, uh, at times when corporations and countries refuse to participate mm-hmm. in the help, that it's right. It, you know, when you're talking about partners, you know, being being murdered by you know snipers. That's at what point are are we? You know, how how can corporations and countries continue to not participate? Mm-hmm. You know, and how, to, how, what is the attempt to draw them in or what, you know, like mostly maybe I just want to spend a few seconds saying, well, that's terrible. That's mm-hmm. terrible that, that companies and countries would, would look at a situation like shelter boxes is distributing and losing people on the ground and say, oh, yeah, no, we're good. We don't, mm-hmm. we, we, we're not interested in participating with that. Do you have, mm-hmm. do you have corporations turning you down for support? No, I, I think when it's it's companies refusing to participate, it's really there's no market reason for them to be there, right? There's no <sighs> right. market there's to no, begin with. No so, market reason. But I have to say that <sighs> companies are incredibly generous, particularly in-kind companies that mm-hmm. contribute products to, to disaster situations. And I think you see kind of the best of it when there is a major disaster breaking the headlines, right? Mm-hmm. It's usually some global emergency that's happening. Haiti was a great example where companies were participating from logistics to pharmaceutical products to food. and But it usually has to be the worst day ever. Well, yeah. On that, though, I've, I remember seeing a story just recently where there's such an outpouring of goodwill, but it's in the wrong thing. Like mm-hmm. we have mm-hmm. these piles of shoes we what? can't do anything mm-hmm. with. So what's mm-hmm. your <laughs> your <laughs> listener? You should see her face right now. Uh, what What's the guidance to people who want to give this? Is someone who's listening right now and they're thinking, God, I want to help. I, I don't think I'm one in 30, but I mean, I'm not a big corporation. There might be a corporation who has something that they could offer. And if you do go to shelterboxusa.org and, mm-hmm. and, and let them know. But what should people do and not do just as individual citizens? Mm-hmm. Well, first, I think it, it's the, the best qualities of our human species to want to participate and help people. Right. People they'll never meet, but they feel, feel compelled to help. Yeah. It's wonderful. But I think the important thing to keep in mind is not clogging up those humanitarian arteries, right? Really mm-hmm. focusing on helping those organizations that have a keen expertise in a specific area, whether it's food, whether it's water, whether it's shelter, and really working to help them and support them with what they need. And sometimes, you know, you saw, you know, in, in Pakistan, there's big stories on how, you know, there were high-heeled shoes clogging up right, the, the arteries. Right, and, right. The, and, and that's the last thing you need on the worst day ever is to be sending sometimes, you know, the shoes in or the animals or the so, animals. So, <laughs> stuffed animals. Oh, okay. But there's, a, of so course, here, there's, you a, can have my cat. there's a, per, there's a, a really important purpose for it at some point, but probably not day one. Mm. Right. Right. So it's getting the essential things. And so it's working and finding really good trusted nonprofits that you believe in that are leaning in and helping out in an important way. And, you know, sometime it might be assembling goods and and helping, but oftentimes it could be making donations to those organizations to enable them for an organization like Shelterbox. 
anything that we're sending in day one of an emergency has likely been pre-positioned and prepared for that specific type of emergency six to 12 months before. Is, 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 so maybe is it is it the best way to help a nonprofit like Shelterbox would be be pre-positioned yourself, which is build the relationship with them now, mm-hmm. not after the great emergency? Like like if, if you're compelled to help on the worst day ever, how about you get ready to help before you, you know what I'm saying? Like, 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 talk to you guys not not the day after the storm, mm-hmm. but talk a couple months in advance of the storm to right. know what the needs are going to be. Right, or supporting those organizations on an annual basis. Continuously, and it's yeah. really hard for an organization like Shelterbox, and that, you know, we are responding on average every two weeks to an emergency. Right oh, now, yeah. we're deployed Jeez. in 12 different countries. Most of that you'll never hear about because it hasn't broken the headlines. And I always say, if it bleeds, it leads. And it's on the absolute worst day ever when a disaster breaks global headlines and everyone's talking about it. The window is short. For one news cycle. Yep, it's yeah. it's w- so short. But it's it's disasters typically drive donations, and it's mm-hmm. not the best time mm-hmm. to give. It's an you know, and people want to give, and I understand why. That's just a really emotional trigger, right? They're seeing this on yeah. TV and this devastation. But for an organization like ours to be ready and prepositioned, those donations had to be made for, that we're going to deploy a year ago, right. right? So it's helping organizations that do this work be ready all the time. On this idea of prepositioning, I had a got to work with Farmers Insurance. I've uh, heard of them. You, the, the, they're fairly well known. Not as great as Tolman Weicker Insurance. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. No problem. Yeah, yeah. So, um, Farmers has their own weather stations, weather channel. So they're plugged in because, as you said, we know this thing is coming. Mm-hmm. An earthquake, we don't know it's coming. So that's right. challenging. But the hurricane, we know. Mm-hmm. I mean, we knew as soon as it broke off Cancun, this baby's coming to Texas, right? Mm-hmm. So you can, you may not have a lot of time, but you do have some time, right, right to do what you mm-hmm. need to do. And so it was interesting when I found out they said, oh, yeah, we know what's coming and we're, we're way out in advance. Mm-hmm. And what they were trying to do is figure out across the United States, if it's, we know a hurricane's coming, I need to know who are all of our adjusters who are certified in flood mm. and know flood and apartment or flood and commercial buildings so they can go in and do immediately the things that they need to do, Mm -hmm. right? And I thought, oh, okay, that's it's obvious and and that makes a lot of sense. And and they made sure that Mark Sylvester knew about it. Yeah. <laughs> like I just, this I think, is true. Well, I just, I would, you know, like to point kind of what you said about the corporations of like it doesn't, it's not marketably feasible for them to do, and and yet I, I'm always kind of harping on the fact that that you know that kind of civic service, that kind of like reaching out to communities, is in fact part of you know that's part of the profit margin. There is a huge value in doing that. Mm-hmm. The corporations should acknowledge that 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 kind of participation inside of a crisis is what really does you know endear the rest of the community yep. to them. You yep. know, if you showed up to help put out the fire at my house, I'm much more likely to do business with you. Yeah. You'll you get know? invited to pancakes. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I, I do believe as, as it seems like more and bigger emergencies are hitting our world, co- companies are taking a more strategic approach to disaster relief and they see how it's affecting their businesses, their customers, their mm-hmm. com- communities, their employees. So on that note, <clears throat> one of the ways that Glaxo gave back was they gave executive time, mm-hmm. in this case yours, you weren't the only employee. There's That was a thing mm-hmm. at Glaxo to do that. So I want to go back to that. Did they, um, you, you said it was um, six months, I believe? 
It was the six-month program. It's called the Pulse Program. And did that mean that you were sent here to Santa Barbara to work with Direct Relief and you didn't have to do your day job? Or exactly. you, did you have to do both? So, exactly. <laughs> no. So they embedded me on an assignment for six months. And um, it was really meant to enable a nonprofit to have an employee have a skill that they no- normally wouldn't be able right. to, oh, they couldn't to afford, afford right, to help yeah, build right. capacity for that organization. It just so happened when uh, this CEO came in, Andrew Whitty, and, and this was part of his platform, was really leveraging the Yes, the Pulse program was leveraging the executive talent to do good in the world. Um, It was through a massive global restructuring of the organization. And I remember I applied for the program, and I always believed, you know, good marketing rewards good marketing, but not necessarily good work. And there are these amazing nonprofits that do great work, Mm -hmm. but they can't tell their story. And so I said, I'm going to do this. And I had a four-year-old daughter at the time, and I said, okay, I'm going to do this, but if I do it, I'm bringing her along with me. And um, most everyone I worked with in the commercial organization of GSK in the U.S. thought I was crazy. And my boss at the time said, we're going through a reorganization. I'm not even going to be here probably when you get back. And I just, why would you do this? (laughs) And I was really only a handful of people that applied across the world to do this program. To join Pulse. Yes, to join Pulse. And I said, I'm absolutely doing this. And, and you know, it, obviously it changed the course of, of my life. And I never looked back. It was the best decision. I was going to say, in hindsight, you got to come to Santa Barbara. But at the time, there were, there were three different projects I w- was looking at. And there was another one with Save the Children in uh, Mumbai and oh. another one with um, the Hole in the Wall gang camp. And so, and in in the UK, and yeah. and, and so I was, you know, placed in Santa Barbara, which, yeah, was a pretty good. So gig. this yeah. you, 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 it was interesting around the marketing side because having worked with a ton of nonprofits here in town and been on boards and all of that, I think marketing is the biggest gap mm-hmm. that they have. What's your? So we have, we've had a lots of uh, executive directors of nonprofits in the studio where mm-hmm. you're sitting. Um, what what kind of advice would you give them around telling their story? Mm-hmm. I think it, it's really trying to identify what's uniquely different about their organization, and you know, and really looking at how they're positioning themselves. Because if if they don't get out there and, and position themselves, the market will position them for right, them. Right, right, right. So it's really what is uniquely different, and what you know, benefit or service does this organization provide that is so unique? And I think you know, the best way to do that is often through the stories. Is you know, what are the stories of the impact that your organization is having? So right. setting up with the issue, what the issue is, and then how your organization is really part of that solution to improving that problem. It's interesting that you use the word impact because I'm a, I'm a TEDster, as you know, mm-hmm. and we're doing TEDx Santa Barbara is coming right. up and we're, we're doing a, um, an event, but the theme of the event is impact, right? It's, we're connecting mm-hmm. citizens to what we're doing to let them know that look at the impact TEDx Santa Barbara has had with these people who've stepped into the red circle and where have those ideas gone, right? Because mm-hmm. it's about the ideas. And it's just interesting, you said mm-hmm. focus on that stories of impact, which mm-hmm. uh, which I love. D- tell me a little bit about um, your backstory because you were, gosh, you were at GSK for how many years? 14 mm-hmm. years? Mm-hmm. And what got you into marketing? What is it about that that you love so much? Um, oh dear. Um, 
If I go back to probably marketing for me, it probably started when I was six or seven years See, old. See, I knew that. See, I, <laughs> and, how did I know that? Um, my parents had uh, a very small shop. It was a little fabric shop in really? town. Yes. And what town? In Naugatuck, Connecticut. Yeah. And they're still there. And really? the shop is still there. And um, my dad left. He had a corporate job until I was five years old. And they asked him to move to Singapore, and he wouldn't. And he wanted to stay in this town where he grew up and married his high school sweetheart. And um, he worked every single day of the week. He worked for, in a glass company on Saturdays, cutting glass. He had a flea market on Sundays. Really? He had the fabric store. He worked morning, noon, and night. I never remember my dad not working. I still don't remember him. He's still working today. But when I was young, he always brought me to work with him. So I would get up at 4 o'clock in the morning on Sundays from the time I was 7, and I would work with him at the flea market. Uh, there was a gentleman that came from New York City every single Sunday, and I started work with him at 5 in the morning. I wore a money belt, and I sold dollar toys. And it was toys, sunglasses, earrings, and it oh was the God. stuff that you'd see in Chinatown, New yeah. York. Yeah. And yeah. How old I, were you? I was seven. Yeah. yeah, who doesn't want to buy perfect a dollar toy? Oh, I was like, oh my God. Yes. And I loved it. Yeah. And I was so passionate about these products. And I loved that job. And during the week after school, I'd walk from St. Francis down to my parents' shop. And I would work there most afternoons. My dad would have to go install awnings or put shades or blinds up. And he couldn't afford to have people working in the store. So I would work in the store from the time I was very young. Mm. And, you know, I just, I loved it. I loved working with the people that would come in for things. Um, Did you say it's a fabric store? It was a fabric store. So like, like notions and thread and canvas and vinyl. Yeah. And, and so we'd sell, you know, yards of fabric or people would come in for quilting fabrics. And I was I, a, a fabric store. I spent a lot of, a single mom, I spent a lot of time in a fabric store, you know, kind of looking through patterns and like mm. fabric store has a wonderful amount of like mystery and because you're just kind of like there's all these bolts of patterns and you know different textures mm. there's, exactly. there's so much in there i could imagine as a child growing up in a fabric store that's a little bit like growing up in like a magic laboratory mm -hmm. you know like like this yeah. is an imaginarium yeah. people come in here with an imagination of what they want to build i sell them a perfect fabric right. they actually build it and then they tell me about it when they come <laughs> back next week w was it yeah. the the direct interaction with people or was it the selling or was it the telling? Because oh, there, there were a lot of yeah. things going on there. I would say all of the above because um, it wasn't just selling. Um, it was the interaction with people probably first and foremost and getting people excited about anything from a toy to the fabric to we also had a Christmas tree farm, a of small course, Christmas tree course. farm. And yeah, my yeah, job yes, was yes. shoveling manure around the sure, trees sure. at a young age. Yeah, uh -huh. <laughs> so, uh, and, and, you know, it was interesting because, you know, I think the – earliest interests I had in any sort of giving back or philanthropy really came from my dad in that uh, it was really interesting working at his store at a young age because half the people that came into the store were not customers. So what? we used to have Rocky that would come in, who was a homeless man that used to collect the cans, and mm -hmm. he'd come in and look for my dad, and there'd be cans in the back. There was another lady who came in every week, and she borrowed $5 from my dad on a Monday for her cigarettes, and she paid it back on a Friday. And mm. so it was just really interesting to see the kind of the cast of characters that had my dad had in his life. And my mom was, for the most part, a homemaker, and my dad was just really um, engaging all different types of people from the community. And I think I just had a, 
a love of all these interesting different people that come in and learning about them and their lives and situations. And then, you know, the sales part was always really exciting as well. Right, sure, right? sure, sure, sure. <laughs> so. That lesson is one that seems like a really great one that your dad had of that, that people from every kind of level of, of, of society mm -hmm. have value, mm -hmm. right? Regardless of, regardless of what the misconception of them might be, they had a value to him. You know, the, yeah. the, the person collecting cans had a, a place mm -hmm. and were acknowledged, you know, mm -hmm. their humanity was allowed and acknowledged mm -hmm. and not dis discounted. Mm -hmm. uh, mm. And that seems to play out in your current work as well, yeah. where it's like you'll go anywhere in the world because everybody's a human. Mm -hmm. There's something, I, I'm thinking of Malcolm Gladwell talking about 10,000 hours of doing mm -hmm. something and it feels like you had <laughs> 10,000 hours of I and interactions mm -hmm. with people in that giving from the very beginning giving and telling and mm -hmm. how all that was woven in. So this feels like the natural place for you to mm -hmm. be. So you must feel like this current job fits you like a well-tailored suit. I do. I, I love it. <laughs> I, I absolutely love what I do. And um, Do you take your daughter to work now? Does she I, I've always taken my daughter to work, oh. even at Glaxo. Yeah. And so um, I've been a, a single mom since she was three. Her, her dad lives in Japan. And it was really out of necessity that I would bring her in. So I always, you know, tried to line up my life so it could work somewhat, you know, some, be with somewhat convenient d due to the complexities of it. So when we lived in Philadelphia with Glaxo, her school was literally next door to the organization. Oh, so often in the afternoons, sh she would come in. Mm -hmm. um, the same thing when I worked at Direct Relief is often she came in to help with volunteer assignments or helping with tours. And I always tried to really engage her in the work um, of the organization. And in general, you know, Santa Barbara can be a somewhat homogenous place at times and feel that oh. way. And so, <laughs> you know, I think this brings a whole different level in her life of, of humanity and really knowing in all sorts of situations. She knows what, you know, we're doing in the Lock Lake Chad Basin right now. She knows what's happening in she? Syria. She's 13. Oh, a perfect um, age. And so, but she's been hearing and learning about this um, since she was a child. And so much of my work, you know, happens 24-7. So most, most of the time my day starts at 5. So when she's getting up for school, she hears me on telecons. And she hears us talking about what the story is in Iraq and response team members that, you know, are in Chad right now. And so she's always hearing them in the background. And that's just kind of, I think there's this uh, normalcy there for her and just mm -hmm. learning and hearing about all these situations. She's going to ace her <laughs> geography classes. Um. <laughs> <laughs> she does well in geography. Yeah. When uh, so I got introduced to you several months ago, and I just just fell in love with this whole concept, and your energy is is so great. Uh, and then uh, I was trying to get a hold of you, and she said, "Oh no, she's in London meeting with the royals." <laughs> what was that? So uh, Camilla, the, Her Royal Highness, was in Pakistan um, in 2006 with Charles. And they often travel to disaster zones. And it was after that earthquake that she and Charles became familiar with the work of Shelterbox. And she became, in 2007, uh, the president of Shelterbox in the UK. Mm. And oh. so she ha she works with a handful of charities. And Shelterbox is the disaster relief charity that she works with. So in the UK, we were opening our visitor center. And as I mentioned to you, this massive undertaking to scale the organization right, to serve more people. Right. So we've invested significantly in operations 
Um, and so it's a whole new center, but we also have created a center where visitors off, from off the street can come in and it's an immersive experience into Shelterbox. The oh. decision to deploy, where mm -hmm. we deploy, what we deploy, the impact of the work that we have. And so um, she opened that official center oh, nice. last month. and. I was invited to be in the official kind of receiving line. We um, Shelterbox has a unique relationship with Rotary International. We're the official project partner of Rotary International in emergencies, which is really what facilitates our ability to respond effectively anywhere in the world. They is have having an incredible network. And ne yeah. the network is incredible. So I was with several um, Rotarians and high-ranking uh, Rotary International um, officials and so I was part of that line and I got to meet her and she, she said to me when she met me she said I've heard you've traveled the furthest to see me it was also her 70th birthday mm, so um, I've invited her to come to Santa Barbara she visited a month prior to the visitor center opening she visited shelter box in Canada huh. so she said she promised she'd come with Charles to Santa Barbara so we have to we have to follow up and get yeah. them here well I'll send her the podcast <laughs> yeah. So you said, you I just, can we just just for a second glance at that that story arch from the flea market mm -hmm. in Connecticut, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, to some amount of years later, shaking hands with, you know, the most powerful people in the United Kingdom. Uh, mm -hmm. among what others. was the phone call to your dad like when you told him you were going to do that? <laughs> He was at work. He couldn't take the call. <laughs> busy. I think you're right. Yeah. <laughs> Carrie, thank you so much yeah. for joining us on the show. Uh, one of the things we do at the end of the show is we allow you the opportunity to name the show. Mm -hmm. Because we've got, <clears throat> I think I did the count where it, like 171 or something, yeah. Patrick. Where, I, yeah. You know what? Here's, but who's counting? You, well, I was just going to say, you ready? I've lost count. Ooh. <laughs> when, when you've Ooh. made so many podcasts that you've lost count, I think you're in a good place. We've had some great conversations in this room. And what happens is people will hear about this show. Mm -hmm. They'll listen to it and they go, that was really great. And they want to listen to another. So they look at this long list of titles. Mm -hmm. And so the title is really what sells it. Because okay. most of the time they don't know the people. So the title has got to sell it. What are we going to call this show? Oh, dear. Your marketing. Come he on. He loves to do this to marketing people. This <laughs> yes. is his favorite thing. <laughs> I have an idea, but I'm going to let you. Uh, What's your idea? I really like disasters drive donations. Yeah. There was he loves alliteration. I, I, yeah, yeah, it's because I love alliteration. I love that. And then the quote for the show, I think, is the power of the human spirit. You didn't like, even give her a chance. You didn't even. Make well, her no, I, I laid, it was a softball. She can edit that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I was trying to think of something clever, but yeah, yeah. We need something. I, I want to get shelter box in there somehow. What do you think it is? This is the part where the listener is yelling at their phone, <laughs> saying, "Mark, can't you hear me? Don't you know?" Listen, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you a would, pass okay. to the end of the day. Okay, the end of the day. Because we're take gonna that. post this show. Okay. We're gonna post this show early. I have the um, right picture for you for this. You do. I do. Okay. I have a good picture. I don't know that I want to share it, but when they were handing out superlatives in eighth grade and people were getting most popular and they were getting prettiest and yeah. they decided to stick me with most service to the school. <laughs> so I have a picture of myself with um, basically a, an outfit on where I'm scrubbing the floors oh, in good. the gymnasium. At and 
that you had to pose for. You had to, you had to go show up that day to take that picture. Oh, right, sure. right. Yeah. 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 I think with the arc of your life and the story of this, that would be a perfect picture to share. <laughs> Carrie, thank you so much for joining us on the show. We Thanks. really appreciate it. I also want to thank California Lutheran University School of Management and Tolman and Weicker Insurance Services and our podcasting partner, Full String Press. If you're interested in partnering with our podcast, drop us a note, partner at 805connect.com. And Patrick, yeah. how could our listener help us right now? Well, besides rating, writing, and uh, reviewing us on any of the podcast applications that you currently are using, uh, another thing is just to reach out and find somebody who's not currently listening mm. to our podcast, mm. get them subscribed. Um, much like uh, with Shelterbox, build an annual relationship with us. And, uh, oh, I like that. Uh, preposition yourself to, uh, to, and that's what we call subscribing. Uh, and so yes. subscribe to this uh, podcast, and then you can be prepositioned every week to receive Mark's lovely little ear gems that he sends out. I love it. Thank yeah. you for that. And I would love to hear from you if you have an idea for a guest. We are, um, I think we're booked almost four months in advance. We've, you, you listener have been fantastic in sending us ideas. We appreciate that. If you have an idea for a guest, drop me a note, mark at 805connect.com. Thank you in advance for that. We really, really appreciate it. And until next time, this is Mark Sylvester, your host for 805 Conversations.